following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. All right, well, it's Easter Sunday, so we're going to talk this morning about the passion and the resurrection of Christ. So there's several ways we can look at the story of Jesus. One would be historically. That's proofs for the resurrection of Jesus. And like I mentioned, I posted some stuff about this on Facebook this week on the church's site. It just scratches the surface, but it gives you an idea of how Christian theologians or apologists go about looking at history and making the case that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again physically. And in that resurrection, the authority of all the claims he ever made uh, was established. He said he could forgive sins. He said he is Christ. He said he's the Messiah. All of those things, the resurrection is the proof that these things are true. Or we can look at it theologically, and that's to look at what was accomplished for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So in our church, we would talk about something called substitutionary atonement. That simply means that because of our sin, we had a debt that we could not possibly pay, and we owed it to God. But God himself comes to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, and he substitutes himself so that he is paying the penalty for our sins. And what we do as a response to that is recognize Jesus is who he said he is. We recognize that he is Lord. We dedicate our lives to the following and the serving of him, what we call worship. And because of that, his substitution of his body on the cross atones for our eternal penalty. As scripture says, whoever believes on him, and this belief has more has um, more to it than simply thoughts. It includes uh, giving our whole life in a way that we're orienting everything about ourselves to the service and the worship and the love of Christ. Whoever believes on him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And that life begins now as we begin to participate in the kingdom of God. So I've preached on both of these before, and I'm certain that I will again. But what I'd like to do this morning is, for the most part of the sermon, read through the accounts in the Gospels of the passion and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. I can't point you to one passage because the four Gospels bring different details to the story. So what I'm doing is pulling from all four of the Gospels, putting it into the timeline. So you're welcome to follow along at home in some fashion, but you just need to know because it's pulling from the different gospels. It's not going to read smoothly in one gospel. And then at the end, I want to make some comments about the implications for us on Easter Sunday. Um, as I'm going through this, Braden's going to be playing some background music. Cue Braden. And there'll be occasional times where I stop, and it's a time for you um, to just reflect on what was read. Or uh, perhaps uh, we noticed last week that the conversation is picking up in the Facebook feed for this live stream. It might be a time just to quickly post a thought or two about uh, what's settling into you as you read about this part of what Jesus did for us. So occasionally I'll stop for just a little bit, just let the music play, and uh, that could be a time to ponder, to pray, um, to post something that is a reflection of what you've been thinking about as this story is being read. So, yeah, let's jump into it. (laughs) 
Early in the morning, the leading priests and elders met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, who said, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, So you say. But when the leading priests and elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they're bringing against you, Pilate demanded? But Jesus made no response to any of the charges. Now it was the governor's custom each year during Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year there was a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? The leading priests and elders said, well, by our law, Jesus ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. And they persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. When Pilate heard this, he was frightened. He took Jesus back into his headquarters again and asked him, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me? Don't you realize I have the power to release you or crucify you? And Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. Those who handed me over to you have the greater sin. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leader shouted, If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. Well, Pilate saw he wasn't getting anywhere, that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water. He washed his hands before the crowd, and he said, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death. His blood be on us and on our children. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And the crowd shouted back, Barabbas. And Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus, who's called the Messiah? Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Crucify him, yelled the crowd. Pilate responded, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find him not guilty. So Pilate released Barabbas to them, and he ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. The soldiers stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head, and they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. But they knelt before him in mockery, and they taunted, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him again, and then they led him away to be crucified.
Along the way, they came across a man named Simon who was from Cyrene, and the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. They went out to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And the soldiers gave him wine mixed with vinegar, but when Jesus tasted it, he refused to drink it. The soldiers nailed him to the cross, then gambled for his clothes while keeping guard. A sign fastened to the cross above Jesus' head announced the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that many people could read it. The leading priest objected and said to Pilate, change it from the king of the Jews to he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate replied, no, what I've written, I have written. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Look at you now. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, if you are the son of God, save yourself. Come down from the cross. The leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders also mocked Jesus. He saved others. He can't save himself. So he's the king of Israel, is he? Well, let him come down from the cross right now, and then we'll believe in him. He trusted God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Two criminals were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And one of them scoffed and said in the same words as the crowd, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. This man hasn't done anything wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Which is the beginning of Psalm 22. Some of the bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink. But the rest said, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to save him. And then Jesus shouted out again, it is finished, and he released his spirit. And here I need to step out of the story for just a second. The first thing we hear from Jesus on the cross is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned or forsaken me? The last thing we hear from Jesus on the cross is, it is finished. And that is the first verse and the last phrase of Psalm 22. And it's worth noting when Jesus says, it is finished, the Greek word is telos. It's consummated, it's completed, a process is done, an end goal has been reached. So what is that end goal? Well, let's go to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 begins with the psalmist writing, God, why have you forsaken me? And then chronicles this torturous thing, and Psalm 22 is often referred to as a prophetic psalm because it talks about people gambling for clothes and all kinds of things that happened to Jesus. But picking up in verse 25, we begin reading this. 
I will fulfill my vows before those who humble their hearts before him, that is God. Those who are suffering will eat and be nourished. Those who seek him will praise the eternal. May your hearts beat strong forever. Those from the furthest reaches of the earth will remember and turn back to look for the eternal one. All the families of the nations will worship you. The eternal one owns the world. He exercises his gentle rule over all the nations. All the wealthy of the world will eat and worship. All those who fall in the dust will bow before him, even the life that is headed to the grave. Our children will serve him. Future generations will hear the story of how the Lord rescued us. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to the people yet unborn, he has done it. It is finished. That is what Jesus accomplished. Back to the story. Then Jesus released his spirit, and at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart, and tombs opened. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. And they said, this man truly was the son of God. The Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed. As evening approached, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate issued an order to release it to him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a long sheet of clean linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. The next day on the Sabbath, the leading priests and Pharisees went to see Pilate. Sir, we remember what the deceiver once said while he was still alive. After three days, I'll rise from the dead. So we request that you seal the tomb until the third day. This will prevent his disciples from coming and stealing his body and then telling everyone he was raised from the dead. If that happens, we'll be worse off than we were at first. Pilate replied, take guards secure it the best you can. So they sealed the tomb 
and posted guards to protect it. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. And the angel spoke to the woman, Don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying. And now, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there. Remember what I have told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were frightened, but also filled with great joy, and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. They ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, was not with the others when Jesus came, and they told him, We've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. At this time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, Thomas. Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe me because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes on him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but so the world through him could be saved. So there's plenty of things in the world that deserve condemnation, things that literally ought to be brought to trial. Uh, abusers deserve to be brought to trial. Mass shooters deserve to be brought to trial. Meth makers and meth dealers, they deserve to be brought to trial. Depending on who you talk to, apparently everybody in government needs to be brought to trial over what's been happening with the coronavirus and perhaps even some nations as well. And in each of these cases, we're convinced someone needs to answer for these things so that the situation can be made right, if possible, uh, to make sure it won't happen again. I think that makes sense to most of us. But let's make it more personal. 
Maybe we have had things done to us that have damaged us, and we know that what happened and the people who did it need to be brought to trial in some way. These are the things we see or experience that we know deep in our souls, this is not okay. This is not the way life was supposed to be. And on the other hand, maybe we've done things to others that deserve condemnation. It's not meth and it's not murder, so we give ourselves a pass. And yet, we have contributed to the brokenness of the world by breaking other people. And honestly, we have no idea what the ripple effect is. We might see something right in front of us and think it wasn't that big of a deal, but it begins a chain reaction of brokenness. And if you can envision maybe a frozen lake where there's something that starts the cracking and then the cracking spreads out further and deeper than we can imagine. So we, we did or said something that was not okay. And honestly, now we're the perpetrator. We're not the victim in this case. And if we could see how much we've broken the world, I think we would be appalled. So I think we have to be honest. We've all done things that deserve condemnation. There's plenty of guilt to go around. But here's the good news. Jesus didn't come to rub it in. He didn't come to add to the shame or the guilt or the despair that we're already feeling. He came to offer redemption for this. He came into the world to literally rescue, heal, and make whole not just the victims, but the perpetrators. And that's good news for all of us. So Jesus came to save those who abuse and those who have been abused and all those who feel the ripple effect. Jesus came to save the meth dealers and the meth users and all those who feel the ripple effect. Jesus came to save those who self-destruct, who hate, who judge, who lash out, and who hurt others and all who feel the ripple effect. Jesus came to save the proud, the self-absorbed, the cuttingly sarcastic, the stingy and the greedy, the petty, the passive-aggressive, the cowards and the buffoons, the Democrats, the Republicans, the Libertarians, Constitutional and Green Party, I'm not sure which one I forgot, the conservatives and the liberals, the deep and the shallow state, the poor and the rich, the ugly and the beautiful, the famous and the unknown, the 1% and the 99% because we all need to be saved. We know this is true. We know that we need saving. And if we're honest, we know we need saving because we're part of this. And Jesus came to offer salvation to us all. And that is the good news of the gospel. In his death, he paid the price for the eternal consequence of our sin. And in his resurrection, he showed the world he has the power to do the things that he claims. So Jesus said 2,000 years ago that he came to seek and save all those who were lost. This is still true. All of us are still visited by this God who enters the world to seek us out and to save us. Now, we could respond like the crowd. We could try to kill him. And in our modern sense, we could try to get rid of his presence. We can kill the idea of God so we don't have to look at it anymore. But he'll still be there because he's not a God you can kill. We could respond like Pilate and try to be neutral. 
But washing our hands so we don't have to make a decision is a decision. It doesn't absolve us of making one. We can respond like the women and the disciples who saw Jesus and were filled with awe, and then they worshiped the risen Christ. We can even be full of doubt like Thomas, and Jesus will meet us at the point of our doubt. For some of us, real, genuine faith is hard. Like Thomas says, can I see those wounds? I just have to know. And Jesus is faithful. But no matter what you've done, or what's been done to you, or what you think of Jesus, it's still true that by believing in him, you will have life through the power of his name. I'd like to close with Romans 5, verses 1 through 2, and then verses 8 through 11. Since we have been justified through faith in Christ, we're able to experience true and lasting peace with God through our Lord Jesus, the anointed one, the liberating king. Jesus leads us into a place of radical grace where we're able to celebrate the hope of experiencing God's glory. Think about this. While we were wasting our lives in sin, God revealed his powerful love to us in a tangible display. The anointed one died for us. As a result, the blood of Jesus has made us right with God now, and certainly we will be rescued by him from God's wrath in the future. If we were in the heat of combat when God, with God, sorry, when his son reconciled us by laying down his life, how much more will we be saved by Jesus' resurrection life? In fact, we stand now reconciled and at peace with God. That's why we celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.